You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our text today is taken from various Proverbs listed in your bulletin. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. Whoever walks in integrity will be delivered, but he who is crooked in his ways will suddenly fall. Better is a poor person who walks in his integrity than one who is crooked in speech and is a fool. Better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. The righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous, for the upright will inhabit the land and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. This is the word of the Lord. Shortly after my wife and I bought our house, we began remodeling it. Our house was built in 1940, um, but it looked as though when we bought it that it hadn't had any upgrades uh, since about the, the early 80s. And so we didn't feel any kind of way about just tearing things out and changing things as we saw fit. But one of the first things we started tearing out was walls. See, our house, like many in our neighborhood built in that time, was mostly made up of small rooms. And we wanted the living space, at least, to be very open. I, I like to do the dishes. Um, I'm very just right on top of the dishes. As soon as there's a dish that needs to be done, I'm doing it. But I want to be able to participate with those that are in the living room after the meal. I don't want to feel cut off from them, but I also want to clean my sink. Um, well, it's just, here you go. You get to know about me a little bit. Um, but the first thing that we had to figure out when we wanted to take out walls is which ones were load-bearing. Because if you take out a load-bearing, it's going to severely uh, compromise the structure. If you take out enough load-bearing walls, well, that thing's eventually going to come crashing down. And we did not want to compromise the integrity of the house that we had just committed ourselves to for at least the next 30 years. This week, as we continue our summer series in the Proverbs, we're going to be looking at what the Proverbs have to say about integrity. And what we're going to see is that to live a life of integrity is actually to live the blessed life. That's what the blessed life is. It's a life of integrity. But few of us, and ultimately I think the text is going to show us, that none of us are willing or able to actually do that. To able to even live a life of true integrity. But that's why we need Jesus. Ray Ortland, a pastor in Nashville, Tennessee, he puts it like this. He says, the book of Proverbs is a gospel book. And that means the book of Proverbs is good news for bad people. It's about grace for sinners. It's about hope for failures. It's about wisdom for idiots. But what we've said over and over again in this series is that Proverbs aren't promises. Proverbs are not laws. They're poetic expressions of ancient wisdom about what will generally happen when certain actions are taken. They're general truths about what it means to live wisely in God's world. But to see the teachings of the book of Proverbs as gospel teachings, as Ortland puts it, 
then we need to run them through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as we do that this morning, what I think we're going to see is that the integrity the Proverbs describe and all of the blessings that come with it are only available to us in Jesus. And that's my main point this morning. The integrity that the Proverbs describe and all of the blessings that come with it are only available to us in Christ. And so as we look at the topic of integrity this morning, we're going to do it under three headings. And the first is this, integrity's way. As we listen to the text read, you may have noticed that there were some repeated words throughout. Obviously, the word integrity was in nearly every verse, but you may have also noticed that integrity had a seeming equal and opposite counterpart that it was consistently contrasted against. Crookedness. And so to understand integrity, we're going to have to spend some time trying to understand what the Bible means, what the Proverbs mean here about crookedness. See, most of our verses implement what's known as parallelism, and this is a hallmark of Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry rarely rhymes, and especially not so once it's translated into English, but it almost always rhymes conceptually, and that's what's happening in parallelism. Parallelism is when two phrases or clauses or sentences are brought in close connection with each other so that they expand or modify upon the other. And so as we work through our verses, we're going to see that integrity is paralleled by the theme of crookedness. And in each case, the one is going to help us understand the other. And so these repeated words are, are helpful to us. They help us understand what's actually going on. But there was another repeated word. Did you catch it? Because it seems like a throwaway word. And you may have missed it. And I'm, to be perfectly honest, I'm kind of sad at how long it took me to even notice that it was there. As I poured over the text this week, I missed it for longer than I'd really like to admit. And the word is walk. And what I've come to see this week as I studied the text is that to understand what the Proverbs are teaching us about integrity, or crookedness for that matter, we really have to understand what Scripture means and what the Proverbs mean when it uses the word walk. And so let's do that for just a few minutes. Walk. The word translated walk in the Hebrew is halak. And it's really not not a unique word. It's used over 1,500 times in the Old Testament. And it means to go or to come or to walk. Its usage is very broad, but we can learn a lot about it by looking at the first handful of ways that it's used in Scripture. For instance, the first time it's used in Scripture is in Genesis 2.14. The text says, And the name of the third river is the Tigris which flows, walks, east of Assyria. And so the first instance of the word walk is used to describe one of the four rivers that comes from the one river that comes out of Eden, comes out of God's dwelling place, and it waters the garden that he called good. And then it splits into four rivers, and one of those is the Tigris, and the Tigris walks east of Assyria. The second usage, however, is just a page turn later, and it's on the other side of the fall, on the other side of sin. In Genesis 3.8, God is said to be walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And as he comes to Adam and Eve and the serpent, and then he begins to dish out curses because of sin. And as he's doing so, uh, he, he, God tells the serpent that because he deceived the man and the woman, he says, on your belly you shall go, shall walk, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And so it seems 
that part of the serpent's curse is to walk in a way that is fitting with his deception. His evil has a fitting way that he is to walk. Then the narrative of Genesis continues, and we arrive in Genesis 5 at a genealogy that takes us from Adam all the way to Noah. And as we read person after person, living, having children, and then dying, the text is interrupted by a man named Enoch. And it says, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. One of the arguably only two people in Scripture that God's word says didn't die, but God actually took him, was a man named Enoch. And we do not know very much about him, but we do know that he walked with God. And then a chapter later, and this is the last one we'll look at, uh, we read about Noah. And he's described as a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And so from just these first few instances of the word walk in Scripture, we can begin to see a theme forming. Walking is associated with a way of life. It flows from something like the Tigris. It's not just a way to get from point A to point B, but walking in Scripture actually has ethical connotations. The serpent is cursed to go on his belly because of his negative ethic of deception. And then we contrast that against Enoch and Noah, who are, who are described as walking with God, who are blameless and righteous. Walking is a way of life. And listen, now that we've done this, now that we've looked at the word walk, we can actually make short order of the, work, uh, of the words integrity and crookedness. We can look at them pretty quickly. Integrity, for instance, there are three different Hebrew words used in our verses that are translated into our English Bibles as integrity. And we can, we can nuance each of them if we wanted to. We could spend the time and just nitpick what each of them mean. But when you take them together, they give us a quality of completeness or innocence or blamelessness. In fact, in chapter 19, verse 1 that we read earlier, uh, integrity, if you have an NIV in your lap, it's going to be translated blameless. If you brought an NLT with you, it's going to say honest. So it gives you an idea of what it is integrity is trying to get at. These are words that are often used in Leviticus to describe the sacrifices that are offered to God. They have to be complete. They have to be pure. They have to be blameless. They have to have their integrity. Crookedness, on the other hand, the words that are translated crooked mean twisted or perverted. These words are embodied in the serpent who twisted, he perverted God's word. And then his curse is to go on his belly and eat the dust of the earth all the days of his life. And so what we see here is that integrity, it's not a virtue that we possess. It's a lifestyle that we embody. It can't be portioned off into just pieces of us. It's a way that we go. It's a path that we take. It's a way that we walk. And just like walking, we don't only take a portion of ourselves with us. You take, it's an all or nothing endeavor when you walk. But what the Proverbs lay before us is two opposing paths. The path of integrity that we can walk down or the path of crookedness. See, our verses are kind of like a map at a trailhead. I'm not really an outdoorsy kind of guy. I've been to a trail once or twice, maybe three times. 
But you've, you've seen a map. I've seen a map. You've seen a trailhead. And, and what it does is it tells you the different paths that you can take. But more importantly, it tells you where that path is going to take you. Let's look at some verses. In chapter 11, verse 3, it says, The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. 10.9, Whoever walks in his integrity walks securely, but he who makes his way crooked will be found out. 28.18, Whoever walks in integrity will be delivered, but he who is crooked in his ways will suddenly fall. The two paths described here not only take us to very different places, but they have very different scenery. The crooked path is a path of destruction. The perversion of this path will ultimately lead to destruction for the one who walks it. This path is full of distress, and I don't think I have to actually prove this to you. You know that when you're not living the the life that you know that you should, when you're not making the choices that you know that you should, you're always worried, you always have anxiety, you're wondering when you're going to be found out. When is it going to catch up with me? You're always stressed. You're waiting for your downfall, which 28.18 says will come suddenly. On the path of integrity, though, the scenery is very different. And again, you know this. When you're living the way that you know that you should, you find guidance for your life. Integrity gives us direction. When you're walking the path of integrity, you have a defense that you can plead, and it's your innocence One of the words that's translated integrity here shows up a lot in the book of Job. And it is always used, uh, utilized in a way that defends Job. It's always pleading his innocence. It's what he can point to and say, I'm innocent of this. I have my integrity. And when you're on the path of integrity, the Proverbs are telling us that you are on the path of deliverance. Those who are blameless will not be cut off, but they will be delivered the text says. And so the way of integrity is a lifestyle of blessing. It's peace of mind for our souls. Integrity offers a pathway of direction and defense and deliverance to all those who walk it. Crookedness, on the other hand, only offers destruction and distress and downfall. Integrity is not a virtue that we possess. It is a lifestyle that we embody. It's a path that we walk. So that's point number one, integrity's way. Point number two, integrity's wealth. There's a famous little saying that goes, you can't take it with you. And the point of this modern proverb is to get us to enjoy life's blessings, right? Enjoy them now because you can't take them with you. Have that nice dinner. Spend some money. You, You can't take it with you. But this fact is something that the preacher of Ecclesiastes actually laments. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, he says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master for all which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. See, he's saying, I worked so hard. I acquired and gained so much wealth in this life And I can't take it with me. I'm going to have to leave it to someone. And who knows if my heir isn't going to just dump it all all down the drain once I'm gone. And he's furious about it. The Proverbs, though, they paint a picture of wealth. The wealth that we get out of integrity. And it is a wealth that is far more valuable 
than worldly wealth can offer. It's a wealth that we can also hand down to our children. And it's even a wealth that we can take with us after this life. Look at 19.1. Better is a poor person who walks in his integrity than one who is crooked in his speech and is a fool. 28.6. Better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. Here we see earthly poverty exalted when it's accompanied by the heavenly wealth of integrity. The Proverbs is saying it's better to be poor in this life if you have your integrity about you. It's of more value. It provides greater wealth than even a savings account that would allow you to retire in your 40s. And now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that these things can't coexist. The Proverbs aren't teaching that. The Bible doesn't teach that. There are many men and women all throughout the pages of Scripture that are wealthy and powerful, and they have their integrity. These things are not mutually exclusive. But what the Bible is communicating, what these Proverbs are telling us, is that if you are confronted with a choice between forfeiting your heavenly wealth of integrity just to gain the worldly wealth of this life, it is not worth it. It is not worth it. If you have your integrity, you are far wealthier than a man with all of, hev- or all of world- the world's treasure, but headed to destruction. Jesus puts it like this. He says, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? We know the answer to that. It's nothing. It won't be profit at all. And I know that that's hard to believe. I have a hard time believing it at times because I can put my hands on that kind of wealth. I can touch it. It's tangible. Heavenly wealth, it slips through your fingers, it feels like. But see, at the heart of what we truly believe it means to be wealthy is the heart of what we truly believe it means to be blessed. When you think about the blessed life, what do you envision Because to be honest with you, how you answer that question is likely going to drive many of your choices and your actions in this life. In 1 Timothy 2, the the Apostle Paul says that a godly and a dignified life is a peaceful and a quiet life. He says this is the life that we ought to desire to live. This is the life we ought to be praying for our leaders above us to allow us to live. We just want to live godly and dignified lives that are peaceful and quiet, moderate. Later in the Proverbs, it's going to say that we should, what we should ask God for is not too much wealth, because then we might forget him, but not too much poverty, because then we might profane his name and steal. We should ask God that we wouldn't be too rich or too poor. We should only ask for that which is going to keep us in the fear of the Lord. And is this the blessed life that you desire? Is this what you envision when you think about it? A life of moderation. A life of contentment with even just a little. I think if we're honest, when most of us imagine the blessed life, we think of it more closely to the way that Michael Scott outlines it in the office. He says, I saw my entire life flash before my eyes. And guess what? I have four kids. I have a hover car and a hover house. 
And my wife is a runner, and it shows. And Pam and Jim are my best friends. And our kids play together, and I'm happy. And I'm rich, and I never die. It doesn't sound like much, but it's enough for me. (laughs) See, I think many of us, we really like the idea of being content with just a little. We like the idea of a modest, moderate life that's peaceable and quiet. And that's the way that Michael even couches it here, right? It's it's not much. He's he's trying to say, like, I know this doesn't sound like, because that's what he thinks that we should want. But if we really described what we really wanted out of life, what we really thought a blessed life looked like, it would look more like this. And I think that's because we, myself very much included at times, just do not see the immeasurable value and wealth of a life of integrity. We don't see the wealth of a complete life, of a blameless life. Because look, even in verse, uh, chapter 20, verse 7, the righteous man who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. Listen, integrity is wealth that we can hand down to future generations. It's not bad to want to see our children set up with financial security. In fact, the Proverbs are going to celebrate that. But we should never do it at the expense of wealth that we can give them of integrity. The wealth of a life that is blameless. Because if you, as we mentioned earlier, if you are willing to jeopardize that, you are setting yourself and your children up for disaster. Those of us with kids, we we are giving our children an immeasurable inheritance when we do the difficult but simple work of walking the path of integrity. When we love our spouses with Christ's sacrificial love. When we refuse to turn evil for evil. When we refuse to use our words to, to, to curse people and instead, we, we turn a blessing to them. When we choose the honorable path, even when it costs us dearly. When we read our Bible with our children. When we pray with them. When we sing with them. When we commit to bringing them to church on Sunday. When we do the normal things of a modest Christian life. We are giving our children an immeasurable inheritance of blessing. It is counterintuitive to what we are taught in this world. But what the Proverbs are saying is that our kids are far better off growing up in poverty, but having been in close proximity to parents like this. Far better off. To live a life of integrity is to live a life of lasting and generational wealth. And so that's point number two. Point number three. Integrity's wisdom. Look at chapter 2, verses 20 through 22. Speaking of what happens when you value wisdom, Solomon writes, So you will walk in the way of the good and keep the paths of the righteous. For the upright will inhabit the land, and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. What's up with the land? See, all throughout the Old Testament, land is associated with God's covenant blessings. Adam was given the land to work and keep and have dominion over. Abraham and his family were promised land in Genesis 15. 
and maybe most emphatically, when God brought Israel out of Egypt and made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai, he promised them land. The promised land was a large part of the covenant blessings that Israel was going to uh, embrace and enjoy when they obeyed the law of God. And that's probably what's most specifically in view here. And in the beginning of Deuteronomy chapter 28, uh, it shows us what this overwhelming blessing of God's covenant with Israel would look like. And it says that when they obeyed God, when they walked in their integrity, they would, and they were blameless before him, he would establish them in the land. They would have abundance in the workplace and in the home and in the field. They would have no fear of their enemies. Their borders would be very secure because God would fight on their behalf and keep peace around them. And if they wanted to continue to inherit these blessings of the covenant, then they had to live lives of integrity. And if they didn't, Deuteronomy 28 continues, that he would remove them from the land. He would reverse all of these covenant blessings into covenant curses. And one of the paramount blessings of the covenant being land, one of the paramount curses of the covenant is exile. And that's, that's really no different than us. If we want to inherit the blessings of God's covenant, then we must live lives of perfect integrity. But we know that if we don't do this, we can expect to be exiled from him, exiled from his goodness forever. But when we're honest with ourselves, we know that we haven't lived lives of integrity. We know this. And maybe you'd even concede that. You'd say, okay, well, I'm not perfect, but I, I wouldn't necessarily call myself crooked or twisted. You, you say, I'm not as good as I could be, or maybe I should be, but I'm still a pretty good person. But hear this. The Bible does not have a category for pretty good people. You are either blameless or you're twisted. You either have your perfect integrity intact or you are crooked. And if you are crooked, you do not need self-improvement. You need a savior. You need salvation because the crooked path ends in downfall and destruction. Psalm 15 begins, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. The word that's translated blameless in verse 2 is the same word that's translated integrity in Proverbs 2.21. The only one that has the right to dwell with God in his holy habitation is the one who walks in perfect integrity before him. The gospel accounts present to us a king of Israel, the perfect man of integrity, the Lord Jesus. A true Israelite with lineage running back through King David, back through Abraham, back all the way to Adam, the genealogies show us. He's, he's the one person to ever live who walked the perfect path of integrity. He never veered from the way. God's law was a lamp to his feet, providing him direction for his life. Jesus utterly refused to do anything outside of the perfect will of the Father. In his high priestly prayer, he says, Father, I've, I've done all that you've given for me to do. 
In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, I came not to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill it. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's on his knees, he's pouring out sweating drops of blood as he peers into the cup of wrath that he's about to take. He says, not my will, Father, but yours be done. His integrity was his defense. He lived a perfect life, not even stepping as much as a toe onto the crooked path of the wicked. And this ought to have purchased his deliverance. Yet at the end of his life, when he should have been exalted onto the golden throne of a king, he was lifted up and pinned to the wooden arms of a cross. He was given a crown, yes, but it was a crown of thorns. A crown that was twisted together and placed on his head as he was crucified. Jesus, the only person of perfect integrity to ever live, was punished wearing the mark of our crookedness, the mark of our curse. He was the perfect, blameless sacrifice that Leviticus pointed toward. He was the perfectly innocent man that the narrative of Job tells us about. And he was crucified for our sin, and he was crushed in our place. But hear this. Because he was the man of perfect integrity, the curse of death that was rightly ours, but given to him, could not contain him. You see, the resurrection is the vindication of his perfect life. The grave cannot keep what it does not own. And those who believe in him will be raised with him. If you've placed your faith in his finished work, the grave no longer owns you. We will, all of us together, ascend the holy hill of the Lord. Not because of our integrity, but because of Christ's. Because of this, we can now exercise true Christian integrity. See, we've said integrity is a blameless record, but we don't have it except by faith in Jesus. And so, yes, we should still be prone to pointing out the speck that we see in our brother and sister's eye, but Christian integrity says, I need to be aware first that there's a log in my own. See, we we can call out the sin that we see in others, but we first need to admit our dependence on the one who didn't sin. Before we say, woe is you, we need to be willing to look in the mirror and say, woe is me. A man of unclean lips dwelling in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And by the Spirit, we are now empowered to live the life of integrity to which we've been called. Having received a blameless record by faith in Christ, we can now walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called by the Spirit's help, the Apostle Paul tells us. We live into the wealth of integrity provided to us in Christ. The only wealth that we can hand down to future generations, but also take with us beyond the grave. In our rebellion, we tore down all of the load-bearing walls in the house. That thing was headed to destruction, but we stand by faith established on the rock-solid foundation of Jesus. And he promises Though the winds and the waves and the rain and the flood are going to damage that house along the way, he will not let it fall. Our hope is that we can walk the way of integrity by faith in Jesus, embracing the blessing of deliverance found only by faith in Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you.